2: My life has become full of so many wires. Hello and welcome to the EDH RecCast, brought to you by the best deck building site on the web for the commander format, EDH Rec. My name is Joey Schultz, and I'm joined today by my lovely co-hosts. First up, the speedster, whose article series takes you from 60 to 100. It's Matt Morgan.
0: You know, Stephen King has a son named Joe. Now, I'm not joking, but he is.
2: Oh, (laughs) I was really hoping that that would be a joke about me because I have Joe in my name, but then you made it a regular old dad joke, and now I'm sad in all of the ways, Matt.
0: You don't get to personalize a dad joke. That that's just not how think it works. That
2: personalization is, is one of the best things about dad jokes, actually. Anyway, next is the man whose articles remind you to look in the margins. It's Dana Roach.
1: I am here, freshly escaped from the Theros underworld, and I will be henceforth known as the god of pie. We are glad that you could join us.
2: I'm confused about the pie. It could be math. It could be I just like to eat pie. It <laughs> could be definitely uh, either of those things, or maybe even both. Anyway, I'm Joey Schultz, author of the Commander Showdown series. All these articles and more can be found at edhrec.com, along with some awesome featured community content, such as other Commander podcasts and gameplay videos. Edhrec itself is a fantastic deck-building resource that compiles data from deck lists all over the internet to provide helpful recommendations for new Commander decks. And here on the Edhrec cast, we like to give that data a little more context. What is our topic this week, fellas? Silver Bells! Oh, yes, everyone's favorite holiday song, Silver Bells, only in our case, we're going (laughs) to twist it around a bit. It's not Silver Bells so much as Silver Bullets.
1: Silver Bullets sounds way more Halloween-themed than uh, holiday-themed here. That is probably the case, but it is also a good time of year for us to,
2: you know, spend time with folks that we know and that we love, and then uh, load our decks with some stuff that will help take them down really, really well. Silver bullets in a game of Commander can really, really wreck another person's day, and as a dedicated graveyard player, I know precisely how deadly they can be. So we wanted to take that particular topic this week to go over some of the ways that you can completely devastate your enemies to be in the holiday spirit, after all. But before we get there, we do have a few new spoilers from the upcoming Thero set that we wanted to briefly mention. We'll of course have a Thero set review later on, but there are a few things that have come out that we might want to touch on that could have a bit of an impact in commander
0: yeah well the first one is the Biobox box promo they're they're bringing that back and we got a new athrios the shroud veiled which i think is interesting it's not quite for me but i've seen a lot of buzz about it recently uh, i'm going to read athrios for you guys it's four white and a black keeping in with the orzhov colors as athrios was before for a four seven legendary enchantment creature god Athreos is indestructible. As long as your devotion to white and black is less than seven, Athreos is not a creature, so that stays around. But here's where it gets interesting. At the beginning of your end step, put a coin counter on another target creature, and whenever a creature with a coin counter on it dies or is put into exile, return that card to the battlefield under your control.
2: See, Joey likes all of the words on that card. I like returning things, and it's really surprising to me that Athreos can even get things back from exile-based removal.
1: Yeah, it does, the fact that it gets around that swords to plowshares or that path to exile is pretty important in Commander these days, I think.
2: Yeah, indeed. Plus, here's the really crazy thing. The beginning of your end step, you put a coin counter on another target creature. That doesn't say a creature you control. So you actually can put coin counters on another player's creatures and then either destroy or exile them, and then you get to take them. This is thievery, but, you know, Orzov style.
0: I think it's really cool, actually. You can use a bunch of effects like Oblivion Ring or Seal Away, even, because you're still going to be able to get that back, and then it becomes... You know, it's changing zones, so correct me if I'm wrong, Mr. Joey, but even if, you know, Oblivion Ring goes away, they're not going to get it back because it's already changed zones. So it went into exile, then came back in the battlefield, and it's a different creature now.
2: Honestly, the Oblivion Ring and Banishing Light and Grasp of Fate, the way those things interact with the Command Zone is already unintuitive enough. You're asking me to do work about how Oblivion (laughs) Ring interacts with a brand new commander that also has a different type of exile-based stealing effect. That's not what I'm here for. I just want to revive some creatures that I've killed, Matt. That's what I'm all about. Anyway, we don't just have an Athreos Biobox promo as a new legendary creature that's coming out. We also have a few new cards that have been uh, previewed from some of the upcoming Theros theme boosters. There's a bunch of rares two per color for each of these. There's been a bit of buzz around these. I'm a little conflicted, but I want to get your guys' takes on whether you think any of these new theme booster rares might show up in EDH.
1: Well, I think the big thing is to judge them in the proper context. I think if you're judging them against really good cards from, you know, a standard set or something, they definitely are probably going to come up lacking. But if you're looking at them in terms of The very genuinely bad cards we've gotten in the past in, like, intro decks or something, they're fairly interesting, especially when you really drill down and look at the specific decks where they work. Um, They're definitely not broad, you know, wide-reaching cards that will go in a lot of decks, but I think almost every one of them has a home in some specific deck.
2: I think specific is probably the best way to describe those. And some of the design elements on these cards are pretty niche and pretty... Uh, new I would say as well so for example I'll just read out a small number of them here there's a white one called Grasping Giant this is a 6 mana giant with vigilance it's a 5-7 and it says whenever it becomes blocked by a creature you exile that creature until Grasping Giant leaves the battlefield there's also Serpent of Yawning Depths this is a 6 mana 6-6 serpent in blue that says that Krakens, Leviathans, Octopuses and Serpents you control can't be blocked except by Krakens, Leviathans, Octopuses and Serpents which is definitely pretty interesting Moving on to some of the cards in other colors. An interesting standout for me from Black is Underworld Sentinel. This is a 5-mana 4-5 skeleton soldier that says whenever it attacks, you exile target creature card from your graveyard, and when it dies, you put all of the cards exiled with it onto the battlefield. Uh interesting standout also: Terror of Mount Velas. This is a 7-mana dragon with flying and double strike that gives all of your creatures double strike when it enters. There's a chimera in green that forces all creatures to block it and draws you cards when it dies big thing about all of these, though, is just how expensive they are. There's not any of these cards that is less than five mana, and man, expensive cards, that's a pretty tall order for me. I'm not sure really whether I stand on uh, where I stand, I mean, on uh, where these would show up. Niche still seems to be the the thing for me, I guess. Matt, what do you think?
0: So I like them. I, I think they're all interesting, at least. I think that they're playing around with a, some, some cool design space, I've already seen a bunch of people talking about the Sphinx Mindbreaker, the 7-mana the 6-6 six, six Sphinx that when it enters the battlefield, each opponent puts 10 cards into their graveyard from their library, so you mill them for 10. People are talking about combining that with Yarok to play some sort of Yarok mill. I, I've seen a lot of people getting excited about them, and I think that's that's great. Uh, Iron Scale Hydra, I think, will probably go into my Moldrotha deck because it prevents combat damage that creatures would deal and puts plus-one, plus-one counters on it. Tree Shaker Chimera. I'm actually very interested to see how that plays because if you're playing with maybe a, a play group that doesn't interact near as much, having this creature come down in this board state that might get super you know clogged up, all creatures able to block the Chimera do so, so it's going to attract a lot of blockers, and then when it dies you draw three cards, and that's just for an eight-five body. That's in in a lot of Play groups. that's going to be a one-sided board wipe and you're going to draw three cards i think that's a pretty interesting card uh i'm none of them are terribly exciting well, and going to be ubiquitous by any means but i think all of them will have a home like dana said
1: well and that chimera is in green where you're you know possibly running greater good or momentous fall where you're oftentimes sacrificing creatures to draw cards anyway and you're drawing three more on top of it um, and that Iron Scale Hydra is a pretty solid card on its own, but if you're going to run it in, like, that Gardos deck where Hydra spells cost, was it two less or three less? I think it's four. Is it four? could be. I mean, so, it's, so it winds up being double green for that 5-5 five, five that, you know, you're in colors with lure effects too, but even if you're not going that route, that's still a pretty solid Hydra for two mana in that deck. Um, again, it's that real specific kind of niche deck, but I think these are almost all interesting to somebody specific and that's that's about it but that's that's fine. Everything doesn't need to be Generous Gift where, you know, maybe every white deck wants to consider it.
2: Yeah, I think that's also definitely fair. Not every card needs to be a stellar standout and it's nice to have niche homes for this. The most impressive one for me is probably uh, the dragon that has double strike and gives your creatures double strike. That's a pretty potent ability and a dragon tribal deck will absolutely love it. Dana, I know that you have a Sphinx tribal deck, so the Sphinx Mindbreaker would be great for you there. Uh, Serpent of Yawning Depths, the one that makes all of your, you know, sea monsters unblockable except by other sea monsters. That seems really great in a deck like a Rixmithies. Uh, Deathbellow Warcry is a red spell that gets a bunch of Minotaurs. There's a lot of tribal elements here. I'm skeptical on most of them, especially the Underworld Sentinel. As a reanimated player, I have feel like I have a lot better options than that particular one, which has a lot of timing restrictions and also is forced to die to trigger its effect. It just seems a little loose on most of these, but that is also fine. I'm happy with the Athreos that we got for sure, so that is probably where I'll take most of my interest when it comes to Theros, but these are also just some really basic previews. We haven't gotten to the set proper just yet, so I'm excited to see what we've got when we, you know, get to Theroset proper. Before we move on to our main topic, there's one other announcement that I wanted to uh, put out here, and that is just that I, at the time of this particular podcast going out, I will be present at the Magic Fest in Portland in the Command Zone. So, listeners, if you would like to come and get a game in with me and maybe tell me why I'm wrong about some of these new theme cards, feel free to uh, find me. I will actually have some EDH RecCast playmats to give away while we are there. So definitely come and find me to get some games in so I can show you how wonderful it is for me to reanimate the entire world against you.
1: Well, and Joey, I will throw I'll throw a plug out here as well. Um, this Saturday, so this show will will air on Friday, and so the, so 24 hours from when we're out here, I'm going to be streaming on MTG Lexicon's 24 hour stream. I'm going to be doing it remotely um, with a camera on my on my on my board, but I'm going to be playing from I believe it's 7 o'clock p.m. until 10 p.m. Pacific time. Sweet
2: deal. Yeah, listeners, you can definitely find us in a whole bunch of ways is what I'm hearing.
1: Yeah. Yeah, you can come see Joey in person and you can see me remotely. And you can come see
0: me in the mountains somewhere. Just (laughs) skipping along.
2: looking for bigfoot and for all of those hydras as you tend to do mr green player that makes a lot of sense anyway let's move on now to our main topic we're not talking about silver bells we're talking about silver bullets cards that absolutely wreck specific strategies Real quick, I would like to acknowledge we won't be discussing some of the specific color hosers, you know, cards that destroy all islands or, you know, destroy all planes or, uh, you know, destroy all black creatures or something like that because those don't tend to be pretty fun and they also don't tend to be crazy popular either. So that probably won't be the kind of thing that you would see uh, too often when it comes to your typical EDH game. Instead, what we want to talk about are the cards that really take out specific strategies rather than specific colors. And uh, unfortunately, we're going to start in the most painful place for me personally. We're going to talk about ways that you can really hose those graveyard strategies
1: i I'm- Joey's just trying to make Aaron Campbell angry
2: here with this. <laughs> I'm really not. She is my dredge <laughs> queen. I am sorry that we are discussing cards that get rid of uh, the graveyard synergies. They are my favorite thing, but they are also so prominent in EDH that it's good to be prepared for them. What are some of your guys' favorite silver bullets against graveyard strategies that really wreck their day?
1: I mean, I mean, I think currently I have scavenger grounds in every single deck I play, and if I'm playing black, I have bedjuka bog in 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 every single black deck. They there's almost no downside to having them. If you don't need them, they can just sit there, and when you need them, they're they're available to shut off some horrifying rise of the dark realms or living death or something.
2: Yeah, having access to exile graveyards just on your lands, such a low cost. There, that one's really. I hate seeing a scavenger grounds across the field for me. At least a bajuca bog, I feel like I'm safe if someone's played it. But anytime I see an opponent playing black, I'm always wary that they'll get rid of my graveyard too. Matt, how about you? Well, I'm going to call out one
0: that I know Aaron and you got into an argument on Twitter about, but Ashiok Dream Render, a lot of people forget. <laughs> so Ashiok's ability, you can target yourself and mill four cards and then exile everybody else's graveyards all at the same time. And oh, by the way... Ashiok prevents them from tutoring anything, so Ashiok is really just a total hoser, kills the graveyard, kills any tutoring, that's just a silver bullet on two fronts, really.
2: And that's really the thing. That's what makes Ashiok so terrifying is because they don't just stop you. Like, they get rid of the graveyard and it's so difficult to refill that graveyard. But then you also can't use things like Buried Alive to put more things into the graveyard, which is what I want to do. So that shuts you down on two fronts, which is just monstrous. But that's not the only thing that gets rid of all of the graveyards. You've also got enchantments like Rest in Peace. When it enters, it automatically exiles all of the graveyards. And then all future stuff that goes to the graveyards is also gone. Uh, there's also stuff like Relic of Progenitus, which is just a instant speed. Whenever you need to get rid of the graveyard, you can, and it replaces itself, which is just so mean. And the thing that's important about these particular cards is that they really do affect the graveyard's permanently, and that's an important distinction between that and cards like Digger's Cage or uh, Ground Seal, which prevent access to graveyards, but don't actually wholly get rid of them. And that gives me hope. If I see a Digger's Cage or a Ground Seal, I feel like I might be able to get rid of those and then I'm back in the game. But something like an Ashiok or a Rest in Peace, those really stop me because then the Graveyards are completely gone, and I have completely lost all hope. That's what makes them so silver in terms of how their bullet hood is. That was a complete sentence. sentence. <laughs> well,
0: Joey, let's not forget, Wait. let's not forget in Kansas City when we were playing against a game, I kept a one land hand with Valduk because it had Tormod's crypt in hand, and that was enough to get me targeted pretty quick by you. And the only reason <laughs> I kept it was because I knew I was playing a game with Joey, so
2: yeah, yep. Yep, yeah, that's that's what you gotta do. Yeah. And to be clear, the argument, quote unquote, that I had with Erin Campbell was that she was really excited to play Ashiok in her own Moldrotha deck, which I don't like that. Miss Erin, my queen, I love you <laughs> sincerely, but why are you like this? Anyway, any other graveyard hosers that you guys can think of
1: that really put
2: a bullet into that strategy?
1: Uh scavenging ooze, um, mm-hmm. you know, does absolute work and Kind of the beauty of scavenging ooze but this is really true of a whole lot of these cards um you don't need to be hitting a graveyard strategy necessarily i mean obviously they're great against someone whose deck is built around reanimation whether it's like a Maldrotha or Marin or what have you but almost everybody's deck does something with the graveyard like the amount of decks that aren't running an eternal witness or aren't running you know something that in some way recurs cards from their graveyard are pretty few and far between. So even if you're not playing against that that huge graveyard kind of deck, the cards are almost never dead. You know, Scavenging Ooze, for example, there's always going to be something in your opponent's graveyard, and even if you're not removing it defensively, you just remove it to buff your Scavenging Ooze up. Yeah, yeah. that's a really, really good
2: Really, really nasty one. Yeah, and it progresses your own game plan by making a big creature that was low mana investment. Really love that one. These can definitely, definitely wreck my day, which means we need to move as far away from this particular segment of the show as possible. Let's move on now to another strategy and find some ways to wreck that strategy's day as well. We're moving on now to artifacts. What are some ways that you guys have to take down the artifacts player?
1: I, mean, I, I think the, the first card that comes to mind is Vandalblast. Um, You know, that should show you how crazy powerful Cyclonic Rift is that Phandal Blast isn't the best overload card ever printed.
2: (laughs) That's true. Yeah. And it doesn't touch your own artifacts. That's what makes it so impactful. It just destroys all of the artifacts you don't control. Ah, that's mean.
1: And, you know, being able to cast it for one mana in an emergency, that's still pretty decent, too. And just, now, just hit one target if you need to, but you know that it's a great flexible card that can just decimate board states if you happen to have the mana to do so. Fantastic.
2: One that also stands out to me when it comes to destroying all of the artifacts is the card Bane of Progress. Matt, I'm sure that you're a fan of this one, that six mana elemental horror, whatever it is that destroys all the artifacts, and then, like Scavenging Ooze, gets even bigger for each one that you destroy.
0: No, I totally am. Bane of Progress is... Quite the card. I will just throw it out there. It is quite the card. But two of my favorites, actually, because I am Mr. Celesnia uh, Collector Oof is a new card that has surprised me quite a bit that really shuts everything down. Uh, and then Stony Silence. That's just kind of just two great staple cards that just happen to shut down artifact decks, making sure whatever they're trying to do, they just don't get to do it.
2: Yeah, they can't activate abilities of artifacts. Does that include mana abilities? Uh It does.
0: Collector Oof that's shuts so down mana abilities. So your Soul Ring... mana rocks get shut off? Soul ah. Ring is a piece of doo-doo. Proven right here, <laughs> said by Matt
1: Morgan. You're welcome. You heard it first. I mean, it even shuts down, I believe, Artifact Lands, correct? Yes, it does. Yeah, I mean... That it does. That, that's, that's rude.
0: Yeah, collect, Collector <laughs> Oof is basically Null Rod. That's kind of the inspiration behind the card, which is a vintage staple because it does all these things. It shuts down all the Moxin does all those things that you're doing in vintage but in commander where we don't need to get quite that cutthroat we can still play collector Oof because it's still a fantastic card if anybody's playing some artifacts maybe somebody has that pesky brea deck you know who you are Uh, collector Oof is not what you want to see across the table
2: yeah definitely the case any other standouts for you dana
1: um you know where i really tend to use a lot of artifact hate is in my enchantress deck And there's a couple of cards there that are fairly obscure that do work. Uh, Titania's Song basically turns every artifact in play into a creature with power and toughness equal to the converted mana cost. You have to be careful with that ability because obviously if someone has a ton of artifacts, they can then swing at you. But when timed right, it's a great way in an enchantress deck to play an enchantment that draws you cards and, and you know buffs things like Sarah Sanctum. And also just turns off artifacts and in plenty of cases then will kill them if it's like a flung Chalice or uh, one of the Moxen that are legal, Mox Opal, Mox Tantalei, whatever. Mm. Um So that's one that I've had really good luck with an Enchantress deck. There's Damping Field, which is an old enchantment from Antiquities. Players may not untap more than one artifact during each untap step, which again also hits artifact lands in that artifact deck that's running every artifact possible. They just get one single untap, and in an Enchantress deck, you probably don't care because you're probably playing few artifacts, perhaps even none. So that's one I'm kind of a fan of there. And the last one would be Equipoise, which is from Visions, it's an old enchantment. At the beginning of your upkeep, for each land a target player controls, in excess of the number of lands you control, the chosen permanents phase out. So if you have like five lands and they have seven, you choose two lands and those lands phase out. Where it really works nicely in an enchantress deck is, it's not just lands, you repeat that process for artifacts and for creatures. So, in an Enchantress deck where, again, you're running few artifacts, you just phase out their artifacts. That's weird and esoteric
2: and possibly the most you thing I've ever heard. <laughs>
1: Why, thank you. And again, in an Enchantress deck, oftentimes you have very few creatures too, so it does double duty at hitting creatures. So I'm a fan of that card as well.
2: What a crazy bunch of nonsense. There's also plenty of artifact hate in pretty traditional board wipe form. For example, Austere Command, Merciless Eviction, the new Cleansing Nova, those can all really wreck an artifact strategy as well. But one of the things that I find is most important when it comes to a quote unquote silver bullet card is the fact that it is sustained. It's not necessarily just the one-time destruction that you get from Vandal Blast because maybe, you know, Terrible people like me will get those things back from the graveyard in the case of artifact strategies, maybe with some type of Duretti or Trash for Treasure style effect. But then there are also some cards that can hose artifact strategies that keep it sustained. The hate continues past just the one-time effect, like those stony silence effects that you mentioned, Matt. So in this field, there's also stuff like aura shards. Whenever a creature enters the battlefield under your control, you destroy an artifact or enchantment. Well, no matter how many more artifacts they play past the point of destruction, you can destroy those too. Or Hellkite Tyrant, the dragon that hits someone and steals all of their artifacts. If that stays out in play for multiple turns, they have to be afraid of playing anything else in the future. Those can be really great hate cards against them too. But there's one in particular that I think is so monstrously annoying when you are playing artifacts. And that is the enchantment, Aura of Silence, which makes all artifacts and enchantments your opponents cast Cost two more mana to cast,
1: and you can sacrifice it at any time to destroy an artifact or enchantment. What is this card? I mean, I, I, I guarantee this has happened to all of us at one point or another, where you look down and you see the Aura of Silence in play, or the Aura Shards, both of them do this, and you're like, well, I can't do anything till that's gone. Like I, did, like, I just can't play the game plan I want to play because the person played one of these two enchantments that completely shut your deck down. yeah.
2: So
0: let's shift then, guys. Let's let's get away from artifacts. Dana talked about he loves to play enchantment decks. So let's let's talk about how we can hose enchantment strategies. I'll start off, and we can just carry over one. Uh, Bane of Progress. We talked about it being really good against artifact strategies. It does pretty well against enchantments, considering it blows up all, all enchantments as well.
2: Uh, yeah, <laughs> it's so good. And this is also a place where I can continue talking about the Aura of Silence and the Aura of Shards, too. Like, those are just as effective against this particular strategy as well. There, I notice also tends to be a lot less enchantment recursion, necessarily, than how prolific artifact recursion is. So a one-time destruction effect can also still be really effective against enchantment decks, too.
1: Yeah, absolutely. Like, enchantment decks really get hit hard when somebody casts one of those... You know, Bane of Progress type spells that kill all your enchantments in a way that, you know, it's, it's devastating to an artifact deck, but they can bounce back much easier than enchantment decks usually can.
2: Yeah, there are some retether or uh, such effects that can sort of help out, but they tend to be a lot less frequent. Dana, what are some other cards that you are most afraid of when you are playing an enchantress deck?
1: One card that, I, that I've been hit with um, once or twice is Aura Flux, which is an old enchantment from Urza's Legacy, each other enchantment gains during your upkeep pay two or sacrifice this enchantment and it's two in a blue it's in blue which is really weird too but it's it's anti-enchantment tech you can run in a blue deck and and the upkeep doesn't get applied to Auraflux itself so if you're running few or no enchantments in say an artifact deck just, and, and you struggle dealing with enchantments, just drop Orflux. The enchantress deck absolutely can't afford to pay you know 8 or 10 or 12 mana during their upkeep to keep their enchantments around. Oof,
2: that's really, really rude. And here's another one that I think would probably be a bit of a nightmare scenario for you. Or a thief. If I recall, this is the 4 mana 2-2 two, two merfolk that when it dies, it steals all the enchantments.
1: Yeah, that's rough. And I think that, that's also an old Urza's block card, I think. Absolutely
2: devastating to a strategy like that. Sort of like the Hellkite Tyrant. I mean, when they take your stuff, that's so hard to get back. It's so devastating and so mean. A really great way to shut them down.
0: Yeah. Well, and one thing that I've noticed too is sometimes people playing Enchantress decks, they have ways to make all their enchantments hexproof or indestructible. So one thing that I've always been blown away with, and just the fact that it doesn't see a great deal of play, Wave of Vitriol makes you sacrifice all the non-basic lands all your enchantments and all your artifacts and then you get to search up basic lands but you get around that indestructible factor that you know kind of plays in sometimes so having them sacrifice all of those types of permanents that is an insane card and i love it because it just gets around so many different hoops that people will make you jump through
2: That's a really great observation. The indestructibility is definitely something that I've seen, including with the artifact strategies that we mentioned previously. Darksteel Forge tends to be a really big target for those, but the Sacrifice totally gets around to that. That's a really mean card there, Mr. Morgan. What are you up to over there? I'm just
0: being mean as always. It's all I'm doing. (laughs)
2: Alrighty, we are going to move now into the Blink strategy. This is the strategy that loves to exile its own creatures and then bring them back into play to repeat their Enter the Battlefield effects to great effect, because doubling your Eternal Witnesses, doubling your Moldrifters, that sounds pretty darn good. But what are some ways to stop Blink players from being nasty Blink players? What are some cards that you guys would employ to shut them down?
1: I mean, if you don't mind shutting down your own enter the battlefield effects, Torpor Orb does a lot of work for just two mana.
2: Oh, absolutely. Stops all triggered abilities on entering. And then there's also something like Hushwing Griff, which is a creature that has the same ability. And the new Hushbringer, which has some of the weirdest art in the entire (laughs) game, which not only stops enter the battlefield triggers, but also death triggers. So that's pretty mean. But yeah, yeah. The, like when you play one of these cards, when you put that out onto the battlefield, the person who's over there playing Rune of the Hidden Realm looks at it and they're like, oh, my only form of removal tends to be on creatures with Enter the battlefield effects. What do? What do I do? <laughs> what can I do? What do?
0: Yeah, it, it's pretty yeah. fun turning those panharmonicon effects into non-harmonicon effects with <laughs> with Um But one of my favorites, I think, especially against Brago players who are always trying to... Blink stuff like their Sun Titan, for example, or their Moldrifters, Drifters, Containment Priest just gets rid of them for good. It doesn't just say you don't get any inner battlefield effects, it means it's just gone. Bye. See you later. Don't have to worry about it. Yeah. It's it's such a brutal that- card. I I love it.
2: A little bit pricey, as I understand, because I think it shows up in some of the Eternal formats. But yeah, it stops creatures from entering the battlefield. It just exiles them instead if they're trying to enter when they weren't cast honestly, like by paying mana, a.k.a. everything that Joey likes doing. It's actually
0: only like $3 right now because it was an (gasps) Ultimate Masters, so it got pretty
2: cheap. So you might want to pick a couple of those up, Joey. You can play white. It's okay. Uh, I, I would need to pick them up so that other people don't use them against me. It's really, really (laughs) nasty. I've been blown up by Containment Priests uh, many times before. It definitely, because it stops some graveyard stuff too. Like that's one of the important things is that there are plenty of cards that also, you know, do silver bullet work across (laughs) multiple different types of archetypes and Containment Priest is definitely one of those cards. I'm also noticing an interesting addition here in the blink silver bullet section that we've got in our show notes. Someone put the card Dismiss into Dream here and that is a very creative solution.
1: So I I added that it's not one I think you probably necessarily want to run specifically to shut down blink decks. Um, You probably need to have some added synergy, but for those who don't know, it's a seven mana enchantment, one blue and six. Each creature your opponents control is an illusion in addition to its other types and has, when this creature becomes a target of its or ability, sacrifice it. Um, so you probably want to be running that in a deck that maybe has a commander with a targeted ability or something along those lines. So you can use your you know commander to target stuff and have dismissed do work there. But if you happen to be in that position where you would want to run this, it just devastates blink decks because those almost always involve targeting the thing they're blinking. And they just have to sacrifice it instead.
2: Yeah, that's really rude, especially as you mentioned, if your commander does have a way to target individual creatures, that can be really, really devastating. But I think that's such a creative solution that would also work naturally into your game plan. An important thing about some of these silver bullet cards, especially stuff like Torpor Orb, a lot of silver bullet cards don't necessarily advance one's own game plan. They are simply there to stop other players from you know, going off the handle, basically. But Dismiss into Dream might be one of those cards that you can work into the deck's natural strategy without having to feel like you're going out of your way to stop other people from doing powerful stuff. With that said, though, I mean, the Torpor Orb effects are still really good. If your deck has no enter the battlefield effects, it's a form of virtual card advantage to shut down everyone else's because they tend to be really common. And if you're not doing it, but everyone else is, that's a really great way to get an extra edge over them.
1: Yeah, I mean, even if someone isn't running a dedicated ETB kind of deck, people in Commander still really love their their creatures with ETB abilities. There's a reason Eternal Witness is in, you know, 12,000 decks or something, and Acidic Slime is in close to that many um so even if you're not playing against that rune deck or that brago deck you're still with a tarper orb gonna accidentally shut down a third of the cards in a whole lot of people's decks
2: yeah absolutely we're gonna
1: move on now to
2: the landfall strategy hey matt on a recent episode we went over your omnath locus of rage landfall deck so i want to know what some of the cards are that you are most afraid of seeing across the table when you're playing landfall
0: if I tell you, though, then everybody's going to start playing them, and I don't want that to happen. So <laughs> Exactly. So you
2: should probably play stuff.
0: I, I, don't, I don't mind people playing Mana Barbs. That one's not too bad. Actually, it's really bad, so don't play Mana Barbs is what I'm trying <laughs> to say. That's the one
2: that hurts you whenever you tap Mana, is that
0: correct? That is correct, yeah. So it's, it's an enchantment that just sticks around, does a lot of damage whenever people tap their lands. It's so annoying. It's one damage. But that one damage adds up when you're trying to cast five and six drops, so... Right, it's
1: never one damage. No, it's it's never. (laughs) One damage per land, but it's never one damage.
2: Speaking of damage, there are a surprising number of cards that punish people when they get lands into play. So I'm thinking of Zozu the Punisher, Ankh of Mishra, Polluted Bonds. All of those deal like two damage to the person who gets a land, and they tend to apply to all players, like the Mana Barbs, actually. But they're going to hurt someone who's on that landfall strategy and has a bunch, a bunch, a bunch of lands. They're going to hurt them way, way more than they'll hurt you.
0: Yeah, it, it adds yeah, up I, really quick. I don't want to see any of these cards. So if you're listening, just pretend <laughs> nothing of this ever happened. You can, you know, the past five minutes did not ever exist. <laughs>
2: Too bad. If people can play graveyard hate, then they can play landfall hate against you, too. I'm not the only one who suffers this episode, Mr. Morgan. Uh, There is actually, speaking of the graveyard hate stuff, though, here's another uh, sort of section of cards that would be really good against the landfall strategy. You had mentioned Ashiok earlier, the one who exiles graveyards but also stops people from searching libraries. Well, preventing people from searching libraries is also a great way to stop the landfall strategies from searching up a bunch of lands with their Boundless Realms and Cultivate effects.
1: Yeah, like as useful as Stranglehold is at stopping people from taking extra turns, the ability to stop them from fetching, I mean, let alone stopping Demonic Tutor, but like just shutting off the 14 fetch lands that the landfall decks tend to run just to get the double triggers is devastating.
2: Yeah, that Avon Sensor is another one as well, really restricts people's ability to search. And actually, you mentioned Fetchlands, an important thing uh, against people who are playing a lot of the Fetchlands like the Verdant Catacombs and the Misty Rainforests and whatnot. I believe that the uh, Thalia Heretic Cathar is also really powerful against those because... Thalia makes lands enter the battlefield tapped when they're non basic So you play a fetch land while it enters tapped, and then any land that you fetch would also mandatorily be tapped. And that can really stunt a player's tempo when they are trying to do landfall stuff.
0: Yeah, and another one, too, that people kind of forget about, Leonin Arbiter actually is not an irrelevant card. Mm-hmm. You have to pay two mana, otherwise you can't search libraries this turn. So it's just something that you have to keep, keep in the back of your mind turn in and turn out if you want to fetch on somebody else's turn you have to pay that two mana again man it's it's frustrating to play against and you you forget about a lot of those just little types of effects a lot of these effects that we're going to talk about people forget about and just kind of overlook and like oh yeah i forgot about that well i guess i'll take the damage or i guess i'll take whatever this downside of the effect is and it's man it all of this
1: adds up yeah, well, absolutely. in the beauty of the card Joey mentioned, Avon Mind Sensor, a lot of these shut down people searching or or cracking those fetch lands. Aven Mind Center limits you to with the, the top four cards of your library, I believe it is. Yes. Mm-hmm. um but the beauty of it is it has flash. So if stranglehold is out, no one for the most part is is even going to attempt to do it because they can't. Mind sensor gives you that one chance to flash it in in response to someone casting their spell. So then you make them waste it versus waiting till the thing limiting them is gone. You can actually burn somebody and then have the mind sensor sit there and prevent them from doing the thing.
2: Yeah, that's a great observation. I love that. I mean, I hate it because it's been used (laughs) against me to powerful effect, but I do love that observation. All right. Our next category of deck is Voltron. Man, I've played a Voltron deck here or there in my time. I love beating people to death with the commander damage. It feels so good. But Voltron also has quite a lot of weaknesses that you can exploit in fantabulous silver bullet style. What are some ways that stick out to you guys?
1: I mean, the bane of every Voltron deck's existence that isn't Sigarda is Edict Effects. Uh,
2: yeah, just, man, sacrifice is so good. See, this is why Joey likes Graveyards, because Graveyards <laughs> also tend to be sacrifice effects. I love playing Fleshbag Marauders. I love playing Grave Pact. But if you've only got one creature, it's so easy to take out that Voltron creature by just having everyone sacrifice a single creature. Sagarda is an exception because she says that she can't be sacrificed, which is really great. But most other Voltron decks had better watch out.
1: Yeah. I, and again, edicts, we mentioned this for a few other things, but like edict effects are just good in general. You don't even need to run them as hosers for Voltron decks. They're just fantastic. And when you've played that Rafik deck, it's just a bonus. Yeah, absolutely.
0: Yeah, I think another one that is crazy effective, that is much harder to stop as well, is just fog effects in general. Ma- making sure that people, when they swing with their big twenty twenty, trying to kill you with commander damage, If you fog them, Constant Miss is going to make sure that they just don't get to push any damage through no matter how big that Voltron gets. Same with stuff like Glacial Chasm where it just prevents all combat damage that comes to you at the cost of a couple life every turn. Stuff like that, it's frustrating because you never see it coming.
2: Yeah, a personal favorite is the card Spike Weaver, which you can remove plus one counters from in order to fog for the turn. Just repeatable effects like that can really take a Voltron off of your back. But if you've always got access to them, then sometimes it's really tough for the Voltron to be able to answer that type of strategy at all, basically. They'll need some access to Conqueror's Flail or Grand Abolisher effects in order to try and get around you casting those fogs, especially when they're repeatable. There are also a couple of other things that you might be able to do, like that Dismiss Into Dream card that you mentioned earlier, Dana, because a lot of the uh, Voltron strategy involves you attaching things to the Voltron, such as, you know, swiftfoot boots or other pump-up artifacts and enchantments. Well, the Dismiss into Dream would make them sacrifice the Voltron if they try. This is one that I've been personally blown out by when I play Voltron, because I can't put anything onto the Voltron. It makes it, makes it just eternally vulnerable, and I don't know how to get around it.
1: Yeah, I mean, it, it is devastating in multiple different archetypes, and good luck equipping your equipment or putting your auras on that that commander when it gets sacrificed when you try to do so.
0: Yeah, Yeah, the the silliest card I've ever seen to counter Voltron strategies is Hrobi Death's That card is (laughs) so obnoxious. (laughs) So silly. Has that same
2: effect. (laughs) Destroys cards when they become targets of things. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely mean. And another important one, I think, you know, a lot of Voltron strategies really love getting Hexproof onto their Voltron, but a simple card like an Arcane Lighthouse can take that Hexproof away, and that can render them almost impossible to protect, which is really, really effective against Voltron players as well. That can be really, really dicey. All right, we are moving on now to the control decks. What are some ways that you guys would stop a player who is being very controlly and pulling the strings of the game? What are some cards that you would use to really annoy the crap out of them and render their strategy basically inert?
1: I mean, I think that one of these here is one that we used recently or I used recently for a challenge of stats, and that's City of Solitude, where you can only cast spells on your own turn. I mean, good luck, Counterspell player. (laughs) Very
2: much and there's a ton of cards like that. Dosan, the falling yeah. leaf, is another one of those. Players can only cast spells on their own turn. That's so difficult. I, I can't play a factor fiction at the end of someone else's turn if I can't cast spells except on my own turn. Tapping out on my own turn—that is a dangerous proposition when I'm playing control.
1: Yeah, I mean it. It makes everyone who doesn't have access to those instant speed combat, instant speed tricks in general. We're all on the same playing field then.
2: Yeah, very much. Any others that stand out to you, Matt? So
0: I have two that are our peak favorites. So one we talked about very, very briefly last week with my Omnath deck, Citadel of Pain, where it damages every player for uh, every untapped land they have at the end of their turn. But another one that is so sweet, so gnarly is Price of Glory. Now, this is an old, old card from Odyssey that just reads, whenever a player taps a land for mana, if it's not that player's turn, destroy that land. So if that player wants to keep up, you know, three mana for a, you know, dissipate or whatever they're trying to counter with, that's going to cost them three lands in addition to three mana.
2: Yeah, that's so rude. <laughs> I mean, in, in in an emergency, they can. They do still have the option, but man, they don't want to.
1: Like, what are they going to do after they've lost their lands? But, you know, it kind of feels a little bit fair I mean, I don't know if fair is the right word, but like <laughs> they have to make the choice. It's 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 up to them. They can deal with it in lose some lands, or they can just play at the same temple everyone else was playing at. Um, I, I'm actually a huge fan of Price of Glory. <laughs> yeah, I, I use Price of Glory on myself a few times when I'm playing
0: Omnath, where I'll I'll pass a turn and then if I have Titania, uh, the the legend from commander sets, whenever a land goes into the graveyard. I get a five, three, so I'll wait till it's somebody else's turn, tap all my lands for a bunch of mana, and then I get a bunch of elementals because everything went to the graveyard. So it, it's been so funny to see, there's there's so many different ways you can play around Price of Glory, it's awesome.
2: That's nasty, and I'm 100% here for it. Uh, speaking of you know, putting a really big onus on people's lands, another card that sticks out to me here is the card Storm Cauldron. This is a five-mana artifact where each player may play an additional land during their turns, but whenever a land is tapped for mana, it is returned to its owner's hand. This is sometimes a thing that you see, for example, in uh, Borgamos Enraged deck, so that it can return lands to its own hand uh, to then, you know, toss them to deal damage to players. But if you're playing a control deck, continued access to your lands is super, super important, as is playing really, really big spells to help you lock down the board even a really expensive, you know, removal card that gets rid of all of an opponent's artifacts or all of an opponent's creatures or something like that. Like, that's a really tough sell when it means that you might have to bounce six lands back to your hand. That's really, really, really rough to deal with.
0: Yeah, that, that, that's gnarly. And I think one thing, too, if, you, if you're trying to win kind of that control deck minigame against another control deck, stuff like Teferi Time Raveler or Teferi Mage of Zelfir... Both of those cards do a very, very good job at kind of mimicking what City Solitude does, where it slows everybody else down so that you have a chance to get around those counter spells.
2: Uh, yeah, those things are beautiful and devastating and I think that that's also not the only way to attack a control player too it isn't just the timing restriction necessarily but also potentially the card draw restriction that's why the recent Narset Parter of Veils has become so popular in older formats as well she prevents your opponents from being able to draw more than the regular natural one card per turn or Notion Thief which also does the same thing and gives you the cards that they would draw instead that's a great way to stop down the people who like to save up a lot of mana for a big old stroke of genius
1: Yeah, it it just shuts people down um, to the, like, it has to get dealt with for the most part. And and even if you're not playing a control deck, that can do a lot of damage to somebody if they're planning on drawing two cards a turn or something from a Phyrexian Arena. Um, Yeah, those do a lot of work, just in general, even if you're not playing against a control deck.
2: Alrighty, we are going to move as far away as we can from the control side of the spectrum to the other end, and that is with the aggro decks, including stuff like tribal or token-based strategies, the ones that use a lot of combat damage to take people out. What are some simple ways that you guys have to really wreck the aggro player's day?
0: Well, as the resident aggro player, I think I'm the authority on what I don't want to see, And number one for me, I I would say, is sphere of safety, propaganda, crawl space, anything basically that prevents you from attacking with everybody all at once. Uh, It just makes it so annoying to build up this big old massive army that all I want to do is show you how cool it is by running them into your face. And you have to play propaganda that makes me pay mana for every creature that I want to attack with. It's It's just not nice. (laughs)
2: <laughs> yeah, that can uh, that can be really, really mean But you know what, at least those cards don't take away your entire big army Simple wrath spells, things that destroy or exile all creatures Those can actually be silver bullets to this type of strategy too And they just make you start back again at square one So Matt, when it comes to it, which of those would you really prefer to face off against? The one that lets you keep your creatures and that you have to pay a lot of mana to attack with them Or the ones that completely take them away? Um, I would rather have them taken
0: away because then I don't at least get to sit there and look at them on the battlefield being completely
1: useless. So, being yes. taunted by his own creatures. Yeah, you, you're, you're uh.
0: basically just nanny nanny boo-boo, stick your head in doo-doo. That's what those sphere safety effects make
1: me think of. Well, I like to split the difference. See if you if you raft them, then you lose your own stuff too. Whereas if you just wait till they swing and use like an aetherize or an aether spouts mm-hmm. to just bounce them back to their hand or to their library while saving your own stuff, that works really well. And you also have things like sudden spoiling or a polymorphous jest, where you make the creatures do little or no damage, and then you can block them with you know your two twos and devastate the army as well.
2: Yeah, that's also a really mean way to do it. Voltron is weak to repeated fog effects, and aggro decks definitely are weak to those fog effects too. It's the kind of thing that you got to watch out for if you're going to play a really aggressive strategy because they can really, really devastate you. What else do you guys have? What other ways have you used to sort of stunt the aggro development on the board?
1: Uh, One kind of subsection of this would be tokens decks, and I I think... In Commander, at least myself personally, most aggro decks I see tend to be fairly token-based. That's where you can generate a real go-wide strategy early and quickly making a bunch of elves or goblins or or whatever particular flavor of token you're building. Um, So those can be pretty devastating, but something like Maelstrom Pulse that lets you hit a target creature and all creatures of the same name can just gut one of those go-wide token decks. Although it's not instant speed, you could still do some really devastating stuff while also having a card that's really good just as a removal spell in general. Yeah,
2: hiding those silver bullets within cards that are also just good in other ways is definitely a nice trick.
1: And I also like the Ratchet Bomb, Inherit Explosive kind of artifacts that you can basically cast and set to zero and just destroy everything with a cmc of zero Mm -hmm. works great on most tokens some tokens are a copy of a thing so they do have a cmc but you know by and large 95 percent of the tokens i see are ones that are made from something that have a converted mana cost of nothing so for you know a, a zero activation you can blow them up with a ratchet bomb Yeah, Yeah. (laughs) especially
2: something like that that keeps the hate on board and makes them always afraid of it. I mean, when someone drops an O stone, that has a different effect on the game than when someone, you know, plays a regular old Wrath of God or Damnation effect. Like actually being able to see the Navineral's disc that they could activate at any time does change the context of the game and that can also be a version of silver bullet particularly one that threatens to destroy them if you attack the person controlling that destruction effect it might incentivize you to attack someone else instead which means that they're kind of pulling the strings a little bit which is really 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 nasty i mean i love it but it's still really nasty i think also this is the type of deck that suffers most when it comes to those uh, stacksy sort of elements, particularly the you can't untap your stuff elements, like Winter Orb or Meekstone effects. Like these, these decks live and die by their creatures. So if their creatures can't untap and then just sit there uselessly, that can really just stop them from being able to do anything at all.
0: Yeah, it, it's very frustrating. Yeah. Just limiting, cutting down on all those different things they could be doing. Yeah, it, it's it's a definitely a very effective way to do it. And another way too is kind of what Dana was kind of touching on a little bit, stuff like virulent plague. It's something that lingers around. It sits on the battlefield, but that Reese player, they're kind of crying when they see that because that's going to prevent them from doing pretty much anything or a detention sphere and deputy of detention. Those just knock off so many swaths of different things. It's, they're all just very, very powerful effects. But yeah, Meekstone, Winter Orb, all those, I think you're not going to get the most hate from the aggro players. You're going to get the most hate from the table and the table next to you, and the table next to them because I see a winter orb and they see how miserable it makes everybody. So I can't in good faith recommend winter orb, but Joey, you are right. It is a very effective card.
2: We just want to touch on the silver bullets. It doesn't mean that I'm advocating all of them. Although I am seeing a pretty unique card. You guys have mentioned tokens quite a bit, but here's a card that doesn't work really on tokens. This is the card Overburden. Which one of you guys put this nasty little critter into the show notes?
1: That seems like a Matt Morgan kind of move there perhaps it wasn't but let me pull the card up and I can take credit for it
2: uh, I can just toss that I don't know if <laughs> Cause I just was not... a critter and it's not a creature so like okay I can... <laughs> um, let me, so I'll just retake that okay. sorry <clears throat> which one of you guys put this nasty card into the show notes overburden is a two-mana blue enchantment that says whenever a player puts a creature card onto the battlefield, that player returns a land that they control to their owner's hand. Like, that's so devastating, too, sort of like the Storm Cauldron effects were for some of the control strategies, only this one punishes the players for having more creatures. If you're playing a good old-fashioned Marisi Breaker of the Coil, really happy to attack a bunch of people deck, the more creatures that you commit to the board, the fewer resources you have to play those creatures in the future. Like, that's so mean. I can see a lot of Elves player players getting...
1: Less than pleased when they see overburden going across the battlefield. Well, and, and although it does say non-token, it doesn't say cast, so it still functions if someone's bringing things back from the graveyard or bringing them in play off a of, off a of cocoa. Um, it does hit people for for a lot of other things and can just absolutely wreck some decks.
2: I think Why'd you have to bring the graveyard into it, Dana? That's not fair. That's not cool. I, that, your tone is very pointed right I now. I think
0: we found actually the only card that makes Chulain actively not just absolutely insane is what we, what we really did. <laughs> yeah, there
2: we go. <laughs> That's awesome. Let's move on now to our second to last archetype, and that is the Super Friends strategy lots of planeswalkers in play what are some ways that you guys have to try and deal with the super friends players well
0: my go-to i would say is, is probably the immortal sun just keeping them from doing anything it's it's along those lines of the sphere of safety they get their toys on the battlefield but they're just taunting them they're just not being able to do anything uh, it's a, it's so sad to watch but i don't play a lot of planeswalkers so i'm, I'm all on board with immortal sun being played
2: Yeah, and that's also just a card that's generally good in other avenues too, but has a happy happenstance that it can completely shut down other people
1: while you're at it. Absolutely. Like, if no one's playing Planeswalkers, you're still probably feeling okay casting the Immortal Sun.
2: Yeah. That's also one of those things where it has that permanent style of effect that it continually wrecks their day, and they have to you know, get rid of the Immortal Sun or else there's really nothing that they can do. And another card that this reminds me of is Gaddock Teague, which prevents your opponents from casting non-creature spells that cost more than four mana or which have an X in their mana cost. And Planeswalkers are not creature spells, so Gaddock Teague shuts off a whole lot of them, and that is so frustrating. I do love
0: me some some Gaddock Teague, that is such a good hate bear, oh, it, it's so great. But another one, I think, is a card that I know Dana has been pretty big uh, proponent of lately. The Elder Spell is actually something that kind of is designed to hose Super Friends decks.
1: Yeah, uh, I mean, the fact that it, it doesn't have to hit a bunch of targets to be good, two mana to kill one Planeswalker is usually a fairly decent investment. And, you know, pretty frequently you sometimes find yourself facing six Planeswalkers or, or more in, in a game. And you just make them all go away for two mana and if you happen to have your own planeswalker out um i run it in a deck that has five different tezzerits in it that (laughs) feels so good when you're like okay i'm gonna kill those five planeswalkers and my tezzerit now has 19 loyalty all right that's cool so yeah Yeah. it's it's a spell I, i don't have it in all my black decks but i'm running it in two different decks and I, I can't think of many times when I've drawn it and not felt like, eh, yeah, that's okay. I'm going to get two menace value out of this card.
2: Yeah, just destroying one walkers go, destroying multiple is really great. But here's the thing that I think is especially important when it comes to silver bullets against the Super Friends strategy, is that it also exploits a weakness a little bit further down the line. I think that a difficulty of some Super Friends decks is the ability to deal with Other super friends decks because the planeswalkers can't always really attack people to then get rid of loyalty counters on other players. So if your elder spell isn't just removing other planeswalkers, but also pumping your own planeswalker up into ultimate range, usually planeswalker ultimates can be really, really difficult to get around. So that sets the tone of the rest of the game going forward or the card thief of blood, which takes all counters from all permanents and then becomes a huge flying creature just for six mana. That's really great, too, because any future Planeswalkers that they play, they'll have to answer to the really, really big creature that they just made on accident by accidentally feeding that Thief of Blood with a bunch of loyalty counters. So that's the kind of card that can exploit the weaknesses of the deck further down the line beyond just removing the Planeswalkers at that one time, which I think is really, really powerful too. Yeah, and it's not even that's like... A card that I want to see more often.
0: It's not even like they can just bounce Thief of Blood and then go about their business because then you just replay Thief of Blood. I saw somebody right, think yeah. that they were super genius. There was a Thief of Blood on the table that had kind of mopped up the board and somebody played a Jace the Mind Sculptor and bounced it back to their hand and they looked at him like... Are you, are you serious? And then they just got back to their next turn, replayed Thief of Blood, and killed their Jace. And it was so funny to watch because the player just, the the, the look on their face was just, I have made a massive <laughs> mistake right now.
2: Oh, that's devastating. All right, we have one more archetype that we want to get through and talk about some silver bullets for. That is the life gain strategy. When people are gaining hundreds, if not thousands of life, what are some ways that you can use to get around the life gain players and stop them from doing all of the gross, ridiculous life gain shenanigans?
1: Tainted Remedy is a pretty amazing card. It's, it's very efficient. Um, it you know, only costs, what is it, three mana? Mm -hmm. um not only does it prevent them from gaining life if an opponent would gain life that player loses that much life instead and and there are some decks whether it's because a commander has lifelink baked into it or there's some condition on the card where you know when a creature comes into play gain life um like in the case of is it the uh selesnia um commander from ravnica oh tristani tristani um There are some decks where, like, they, if they have their commander out in some cases, they really have a tough time not just getting domed accidentally. So I'm a really big fan of Tainted Remedy. I think it's maybe the kind of card you want to run in a deck where you are in a specific meta and you're going to see a life gain deck pretty frequently, but it can be backbreaking if someone's playing that kind of deck. Oh, that's so mean. That's that's really mean. I love the idea of attacking
2: the Trostani player, not on the creature front, but on the life gain front. You're, that's savage, Dana, but excellent. There's also, you know along the same line of Tented Remedy, there's tons of cards that prevent people from being able to gain life at all. Matt, what are a few of those that maybe you've seen in the wild?
0: So Havoc Festival and Sulfuric Vortex are probably the two most common in, in my playgroups, but there's also stuff like Erebos, God of the Dead, where people just can't gain life sometimes you know with sulfuric vortex people lose life every turn too so it's just flat out not just punishing them but it just doesn't make sure it happens in general which is pretty rude i think I, but i'm not <laughs> going to tell people how to live their life so but yeah those kind of effects are are very very common
2: Yeah, and the great thing about them is that they push forward that particular type of deck's plan pretty naturally on their own as well. Erebos can be used to draw player cards, or Havoc Festival is probably being used in some type of group slug punisher deck, so they're trying to get rid of people's life just by draining the table naturally anyway, so stopping and staunching the life gain in the future is a really great way to make sure that the strategy really sticks. Another thing that I think can really undo all of the life gain players' work, I'm not sure whether this counts as a silver bullet necessarily but it does enough damage that i feel like it maybe counts and that's the soren markov or magister sphinx abilities where they automatically set a player's life total to just straight up 10
1: yeah i mean again just wrecks your entire strategy after you've spent how many turns and how many resources rolling your life total up to you know 60 80 whatever it is and then one spell one turn one time it's just gone not just gone It's down to 10 where you're really easy to kill. (laughs) Yeah. Oh, man. Like, they can continue to
2: gain life after that point. So, again, I'm not sure whether it counts as necessarily a silver bullet. But if they were at 1,000 or even if they were at 150 or who knows what, like, 10 is just, it, it hurts. It hurts so bad. But here's one more important thing about life gain. There are some rules within the game itself that can prevent people from getting out of hand with life gain. They're just baked right into some of the fabric of the game. We all know poison is a great way to stop people from, you know, going crazy with life gain. Triumph of the hordes and tainted strike is really great. But then there's also just straight up commander damage. Having a Voltron commander is a great foil to the idea of a life gain deck.
0: Yeah, it's it's one of those just fail-safes that I think kind of gets a bad reputation. People try to downplay it sometimes, but it always has, there's always a potential for that to happen. And I think that's a good Like you said, Joey, a fail safe. It's a safety valve to make sure that no matter what happens, I mean, even if you have a 1-1, things can go wrong and you can win with a 1-1 via commander damage. So it's not likely, but there's always that chance. And I think that's something about the format that is definitely worth having around.
2: Yeah, I don't want to have to deal with infinite life shenanigans. And in my personal family playgroup, my entire family plays, and my stepdad does have a bunch of life gain strategy going on with his Karlov deck. He can easily get up to like 200 life or something. And frequently, the only person that can stop him is actually my mom's Ojatai Voltron deck. And it's pretty effective to have against that. That's a really great silver bullet to make sure that you can still put the beast down even when the werewolf has gotten absolutely, totally, totally crazy. Silver's the only way that's going to do it, and that's a really great thing to have in your arsenal, just in case you run across those types of decks in the wild. So now that we've gone over a bunch of these different types of silver bullets against a bunch of different types of strategies, I kind of want to note that there are some, you know, different styles of cards among these. There are some of the cards that we've talked about that are maybe... A little bit niche, I suppose. They don't feel like they necessarily advance your own game plan when you're playing them. And then there are some other cards which do naturally fit in uh with your own personal strategy, or just fit into a natural type of card category that you were going to be playing in the deck anyway. Then there are plenty of some of these cards that we mentioned, like Ashiok, that can help negate different types of strategies. I guess I'm wondering when it comes to your own personal decks, guys. Where do you draw the line? Do you actively try to put as many of these silver bullet type of cards into your deck? Do you just hold off for the things that are naturally fitting into categories you already plan on having? Do you look for bullets specifically that can answer multiple different types of strategies? Or are you willing to go and find a torpor orb, even if it doesn't necessarily advance your own strategy? Where do you fall when it comes to building with silver bullets in mind?
0: So for me, it gets to the point where... I'm comfortable with a play group where we kind of start metagaming. There's always this weird point where you're trying to build decks for each other, and and it almost becomes inbred at, to a certain point where you're trying to stop certain decks and certain people, so you start putting cards like that in there. I don't play a ton of, of super specific ones. I don't think I've played Torpor Orb in a deck for a, uh, quite some time. I think it really just depends on on... For one, who the person is. Do I want to lose to my best friend anymore? Am I going to start metagaming against them? Or is it stuff that's just going to be generically good? We mentioned a few cards that, you know, even if you're playing the Immortal Sun, because, you know, you don't want to lose to a Super Friends deck, it's still not a bad card to have, even if there isn't any Super Friends group at the table. So those are the types of considerations I take into account. It's, is it still going to be doing something for me, even if it's not only hitting its very, very specific purpose?
1: Dana, how about you? Yeah, I, I'm really similar to that. The card has to be something that is never dead. Now, that may take the form of, like I mentioned, Scavenger Grounds or Bajuka Bog, where if it doesn't do its work, it's still just a land you can utilize. Or something like Vandal Blast, where in this format, there's never not artifacts in play under at least one person's control and almost always under everyone's control. Um, you know, the Elder Spell I mentioned running in a deck where I have a bunch of Tezzerets, that's a situation where there's so much value added onto that that even if I'm just hitting one planeswalker, there's maybe a chance for it to do something amazing if I have a Tzeentch out and and roll him over into ultra range a turn early or something. So I I don't like to run hate cards or silver bullet kind of cards like this, unless there's extra things stapled on. Either they never hurt me or they have a chance to do something really, really powerful, or at least really, really consistent.
2: That makes sense to me. And I think mostly what you guys are saying sort of lines up with my own experience as well. If I am going to go out of my way, and and that's, I guess, how it feels to me, is that I am going out of the way of my natural strategy when I'm looking for some of these you know hate cards or whatever that can shut down other strategies it doesn't feel necessarily like it's in complete harmony with the deck sometimes so if i am going to do it then i tend to want to have a card that's going to attack multiple different types of strategies like the ashiok that we mentioned which can be really good or the aura of silence is really good just sort of base removal but it also can shut down two different types of archetypes and the the versatility there prevents it from being a dead card in hand that's definitely something that i look for I guess I also sometimes personally feel that I'm not necessarily very good at putting any silver bullet cards into my deck at all. Sometimes I get too distracted and I forget to play any of them. And I do think that they have a pretty you know valid place in the commander format, if you can remember to put them in there, because... I mean, some of these strategies are so powerful that you need to have a really dedicated answer to make sure that they can't go completely crazy in your games. So it's something that I do want to work on, but it is also something that can be difficult to, you know, advise even to uh, players to include in their deck because of how many versatile strategies that there are and the risk of having these cards dead in your hand.
0: Yeah, like I, I, I don't play Triumph of the Hordes, for example because there's somebody that's playing a a massive life gain deck. I play it because it's going to help me win games consistently, and it just happens to also be a silver bullet against a specific type of deck. So, yeah, if it's helping me doing something, Valdek, for example, I play Blood Moon in there because, well, it's not going to affect me, but it affects everybody equally. So it's not really like I'm going too far out of my way to play something that is going to still benefit me in some way.
1: Well, before we wrap this up, I I think it would behoove us to mention the ultimate silver bullet card that didn't get brought up at all during this show. What's that? That's Extinction out of Tempest. It's four and a black. Destroy all creatures of any creature type of your choice. So you just pick werewolves, and it's the ultimate silver bullet. (laughs) (laughs) Because silver,
2: that's where the phrase
1: comes from. Uh, Dana
2: Got him. I got him. You you have won the internet today, congratulations! I'm so devastated from that corny joke right now that I think we need to move on to our final segment and just challenge some stats. Someone take it away from me, Matt. Please start talking so that I don't have to deal with the terribleness that was. There. <laughs>
0: <laughs> that, See, that was amazing. I think it actually was a pretty good joke. So I don't know what you're talking about, um, Dana. Well played. Good good job, well, sir. Thank you. But I will begin us with the challenge of the stats. Uh, so mine this week is for Alila Artful Provocateur decks. So so Alila Artful Provocateur is that Esper and one colored uh, legendary fairy warlock, 2-3 flying death touch lifelink. Other creatures you control flying get plus one plus so, but that's not what I'm too worried about. The ability that I think is super interesting that I'm, I'm trying to brew around a little bit is whenever you cast an artifact or an enchantment spell, create a 1-1 one, one blue fairy creature token with flying. So you're making your own... St- stuff creating some bodies whenever you cast artifacts or enchantments and one spell going back to the vintage format shout out to Miss Erin Campbell again So, the card that I think is just terribly underplayed in a deck where you want to be casting and recasting and recasting again all sorts of artifacts and enchantments is Paradoxical Outcome. It's three and a blue for an instant. Return any number of target non land, non token permanents you control to their own, to their owner's hands. And then you draw a card for each returned to your hand this way. So, if you play out a bunch of cheap artifacts, cheap enchantments, you can play Paradoxical Outcome, draw a fistful of cards and then recast them all again. If you're playing a bunch of mana rocks, for example, you float all the mana, then you use that mana you just created to recast all your spells, you're going to make a not small army pretty quickly. And I think it's only showing up in 6% of Alila decks right now, and that number should be significantly higher with how powerful this card can be. It's an army in a can basically, in addition to, oh yeah, you're just drawing a bunch of cards with just that that added benefit.
2: Not only that, but it can be used really effectively to save your board in an emergency. If someone's using an Oblivion Stone to destroy all of the everythings, Paradoxical Outcome can get a bunch of stuff back to your hand to save it from that board wipe, and then you can play it again later, and you'll have drawn more cards on top of that. So it's also a good fail-safe card, too. I really, really like that pick. There's a lot of uh, different types of uses there that I think you're really latching onto, and I'm definitely here for it. Yeah, I like it do. It, it just seems it's such a good card and there's it's so flexible.
1: Only 6% of Alila decks that just it seems so wrong.
2: righty, Dana, what is your challenge?
1: Uh, mine is a card's only in 136 decks total. It's an enchantment from Ice Age called Mudslide and it says creatures without flying do not untap during their controller's untap step at the end of that player's upkeep. The player may pay 2 mana per creature to untap that creature. So, I don't think it goes in in a ton of decks, but there's a lot of decks that just have only flying creatures, whether it's the various dragon tribal builds out there or the various angel tribal decks that are in Boros colors. There's things like the Kalia decks that are running only angels, demons and dragons where Mudslide doesn't touch any of your stuff, and if dropped at the right point in the game, it's going to lock everyone's creatures into tapped mode in a way that they really can't afford to pay to untap more than just a couple of them, and like you talked about in the silver bullet category, having these silver bullets that stick around and play mudslide. Isn't just like an earthquake effect that you might run in those decks where it will do a board wipe and keep your stuff safe. And then that's it. This is going to keep a lot of stuff pinned down for turn after turn after turn. So it's not the kind of card I think that should be, you know, in 5,000 decks, but I think there's more than 136 decks out there that could utilize this effect in red.
2: That's, I, 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 what, I don't know, when I first saw this card, I was just like, what is Dana thinking? This card's a little crazy. And then you mentioned stuff like the Dragon Tribal. And I'm like, oh, that's actually, yeah, no, that really works. It reminds me of the cards like uh, Dusk to Dawn or Fell the Mighty that a lot of the tiny uh, power decks will use, especially like Defender decks will use all these cards that destroy stuff that has a lot of power. And then all of their wall creatures are basically unaffected you're sort of going along the same axis there to punish the creatures that are on the ground while you have nothing but flying creatures, and that's a great way to find a weird version of card advantage against your opponents, and it's really mean. Guys, we talked about so much mean stuff on this (laughs) episode that I almost feel bad. This should be the mean bullets show. Oh, man, absolutely terrific and yet terrible. Uh, My challenge for this week, this is one that I feel a little strange about, so... I recently discovered it in the articles of one of our own writers, dear Angelo Guerrera. He wrote about God Eternal Oketra very recently. And, and this card, its presence in this deck just absolutely flummoxes me. So kudos to you, Angelo, for pointing this one out. I am absolutely stealing it from you for our challenge Just That This Week. Oketra makes 4-4 four, four zombie creature tokens whenever you cast creature spells, which is really, really great. Like, that's a fantastic way to add some extra punch to the deck. I absolutely love it. But here's the thing. Those zombie tokens are black for 4 zombie creatures. They're not white. So the fact that the card Mass Calcify, a 7-mana white sorcery that destroys all non-white creatures, is showing up in Oketra's decks at a rate of 23%, I'm a little weirded out by that, because it destroys all of your precious zombies. I feel like you don't actually want this, and you could probably just run a regular old type of board wipe instead. Mass Calcify seems very out of place here, so Angelo, I'm stealing that one from you. Destroying the zombie tokens that you worked so hard to create does in fact seem like a really bad idea for this God Eternal Low Catcher deck.
1: Yeah, I'm kind of shocked it's in any of those decks that are making <laughs> Yeah, I, that's
2: Baffling. It, it definitely strikes me like that's usually one of those cards that you would see in mono white, just right. sort of generally, because it is usually useful in mono white. But this is one of those decks where there's an exception to the rule. It's not as great here as it would be in other mono white decks. So keep your eye out for special cases like that.
0: Yeah, I can see why people would make that. I don't know if it's a mistake, but make that card choice because they do see non-white. All the creatures that you're casting to make the zombies are white. But I do agree, you're you're going through a lot of effort and you're just going to lose everything. So that's that's a good catch all around.
2: Yeah, absolutely. But with that, I think we are going to call this episode to a close. I'd like to thank my co-hosts so much for joining me. And hey, if any of our listeners would like to get in touch with us, where can they find you all? Matt?
0: You can find me on the Twitters, at Mathemus55. That's M-A-T-H-I-M-U-S-5-5.
1: And Dana. You can find me on the Twitter birds, at Dana Roach. And you can hear me twice a week on my other podcast, CMDR Central.
2: And I'm Joey Schultz. You can find me at Joseph M. Schultz on Twitter. And special thanks to our editor for the show, Ken Pedal, also known as Kenishnorn. Norn. You can follow him on Twitter at Loader. That's L-O-A-D-3-R. You can follow EDA Trek and the cast on Facebook and Twitter, and you can contact us at EDHRECcast at gmail.com. Plus, you can find us on iTunes, and if you do, please consider leaving us a review to help other folks find the podcast as well. As a reminder, I am presently, at the time that this show goes out, I am presently in the Magic Fest in Portland, so come find me in the Command Zone to get some games in, and we can talk about more silver bullets and fun stuff there. Please don't play any Graveyard Hate against me, but I understand it if you do, because Matt and Dana have taught you well. Anyway, this podcast is posted every week on edHRx community content spotlight section where we feature as many other content creators as we can from command zone to commander's Screw to commander versus not to mention new articles published every day by our own fantastic team of writers we'll be back at you next week with more data and insights but until then remember edh wreck your deck before you wreck your deck